Hey guys, welcome to the Big Blue United podcast. My name is TJ. I'm here with my buddies Dan and Colin. What's up tonight, guys? How you doing? Doing okay. Feeling good. Feeling good. I see Dan's on vacation in Long Island. Colin just got back from Cape Cod. Everyone's doing some uh, stuff. Colin, did you see Gettleman while you're up there or what? No, I didn't. I I, uh, I have to say I wasn't looking for him. Um, if I did stumble uh, into his whatever presence you want to call his presence, I, I probably would have um, – uh, who knows what I would have been doing. I, I, I maybe have not been on here right now. Could have been arrested or something like jail, that. Yeah. yeah, jail. So I, I'm, I'm doing good, all considering. Got a little sunburn on my legs, all good otherwise. I love that. Yeah, I was yeah. Uh, I was at the beach yesterday too. Did a little Robert Moses. It was nice. Uh, Stop by. This Everyone beaching it up. Yeah, well, it's hot, man. What else are you supposed to do? It was a beautiful day actually on the beach. The, the breeze was amazing. Yeah. Stop by uh, the new Root and Branch Bur- Brewery in Copag, Long Island. I think that's how you pronounce it. Nice. Highly recommended. Super, super good. Loved it. Dan, uh, what are you doing out on the island right now? I'm just monitoring my mute button because. I got a raucous conversation going on behind me. A lot of wine is flowing. I I, I can sense. Um, but yeah, just trying to beat the heat, my man. Uh, brutally hot, really hot. I think I think it's you know what they say. Let's have a conversation about the weather. It's the humidity that gets you. Am I right, fellas? I thought oh, that's not right. I, I thought it was the humanity. <laughs> that too. That that's too. It. And tonight we got a really special podcast. We're going to have uh, Jason Reed, who is a senior writer from ESPN for the NFL. He just wrote a book called Rise of the Back Quarterback: What It Means to America. Um, but before we get into that, um, football fans, DraftKings changed the fantasy game forever in 2012. Now, 10 years later, they're doing it again with Rainmakers Football, their first ever NFT fantasy game. A new way to enjoy daily, daily fantasy football and a new shot to win millions in prizes. And the only NFT fantasy game licensed by the NFL Players Association. Playing Rain, Rainmakers Football is simple. Buy, sell, or bid and win player cards with the biggest names in the game through regular drops and auctions. Build your collection of football stars and enter free Rainmaker football contests all season long to compete for millions in jaw-dropping prizes. Each week, craft your lineups of a- lineup of athletes from your NFT collection and rack up points for touchdowns, receptions, and more like you would in daily fantasy football. The next generation of fantasy sports is almost here. Download the DraftKings Daily Fantasy app now and sign up with promo code TPPN. That's promo code TPPN. Click the Rainmaker's tile and opt in so you can be ready for the next drop. Play free for millions in prizes all football season and build the ultimate NFT fantasy franchise with Rainmakers Football. That's promo code TPPN only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Hey guys, we're here with Jason Reed, ESPN senior writer for the NFL. Um, He has a new book out, just came out, called The Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America, out now wherever books are sold. You can follow him on Twitter at Jason Reed ESPN. Um, we're really excited to have you on, Jason, to, uh, you know, discuss race in the NFL. We got a lot of questions for you. Um, wanted to really use this as, you know, not just a learning experience for our listeners, but for us as well. Um, before we kind of get into, like, the nitty-gritty of the topic of the book, I know this is the first book you've, you've written. So, yeah. um, you know, we kind of just wanted to know, like, what, what was the process for you in getting this all together? And, you know, how does it kind of differ from, you know, your experience, your day-to-day writing for ESPN? Well, well, first of all, let me say thank you guys for having me. And, uh, you know, I grew up in New York and my, my brothers and I grew up huge New York Giants fans. Uh, awesome. You know, back, back, back in the days when they were really the Giants. I mean, LT yeah. and Harry Carson and Phil Simms and McConkie and those guys. So a little bit of a different uh, vibe uh, for some time now. But that aside, um, you know, like I, I've been a sports writer my whole career um, and 
I, I had always thought about writing a book someday, but you know, when you're a beat writer, you're out there constantly trying to get news and stay on top of the beat. And um, I became a columnist at the Washington Post. And then I was, you know, trying to get good columns. And I never really thought I'd have the time to do it. Well, when I, I, I had done a season long series in 2019, it was the, everybody knows it was the uh, NFL's 100th season that the NFL was commemorating. And I told my editors at ESPN that it seemed to me that there had never been more African-American quarterbacks who were either superstars or potentially could become superstars. And considering that that was like the most marginalized group in the history of the NFL, I mean, for, for most of NFL history, obviously, I thought, hey, you know, this would be a good thing to look at. And they agreed. And as it turned out, Lamar Jackson in his first full year as a starter won the AP MVP award unanimously. He and Tom Brady, the only quarterbacks to do that. Patrick Mahomes, who had won the previous year's AP award, led the Chiefs to their first Super Bowl title in 50 years, uh, won the MVP award of the game, and in doing so at only 24 years old, became the youngest player in the NFL to have a Super Bowl trophy, a league MVP award, and a Super Bowl trophy. Uh, Kyler Murray, who was the number one who was the uh, number one overall draft pick coming into that season, won the Rookie of the Year award, the AP Offensive Rookie of the Year award. Russell Wilson had a great year, Dak Prescott. So it actually turned out that, yeah, this did happen. And uh, after that season, I was approached about writing a book about it. And I really didn't want to write a book on the same thing. I mean, I'd already done this whole season-long thing. But I told the people who approached me, I said, you know what? If you'll let me go back throughout the course of NFL history and look at how black quarterbacks who, you know, most marginalized group in the history of the league had risen to such a place of like once unfathomable power. I said, that's a book I was interested in writing. So um, I took two years. I approached it like I knew nothing about the subject. And uh, I did like 70 to 75 interviews and 87,000, 88,000 words later, we have Rise of the Black Quarterback, what it means for America. That that's an awesome story. You know, you you bring up some of the more the more modern quarterbacks in the NFL. You know, in the past, you know, we've seen. You know, I know you mentioned Doug Williams in the first chapter of the book, and you know, Steve McNair winning an MVP. Doug Williams obviously winning a Super Bowl, and then you mentioned all these you know superstars. Now, you know what what do you think took so long for the NFL to you know come to the realization that that black quarterbacks could be this successful? And what do you think you know changed that dynamic in the NFL? Well, you know, it's, it's really, it mirrors the, the nation. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that black men, black people, uh, by white people, I mean, this is a fact, were considered to be inherently infer- inferior. Now, I'm not saying every white person in America, you know, felt that way, but overall, that was the case. And so, you know, professional sports just mirrors society in, in many ways. And what you had was a situation where in, in the NFL, Black men, black quarterbacks were considered to be incapable of reading defenses, incapable of leading white men. Uh, Black quarterbacks were perceived to lack heart, lack toughness. And, you know, it wasn't like black quarterbacks were judged as individuals. It was like just all of these black people simply cannot handle the rigors of the position, the, the things that are required at the most important position, not just in, in, in professional football, but in professional sports. I mean, quarterback is the position. It's a u- uniquely American leadership position. And so the league started in 1920. Um, really, we don't see black quarterbacks becoming 
not I wouldn't say prominent. We don't even see black quarterbacks becoming to where they're not an oddity until really the late 1980s, early 1990s. I mean, think about it. League starts in 1920, and Doug Williams is the first black quarterback drafted in the first round of the NFL draft, and it takes till 1978 for that to occur. So, you know, you're talking about just ingrained racism that these that black people just weren't good enough to do it. And, you know, team owners, it's interesting, you're talking to a lot of old-time uh, executives and player personnel people. I mean, there was a belief among NFL club owners that if you if you had a black quarterback, like let's say you had somebody who is you know really great in college, and there were some universities you know, historically black colleges and universities obviously had black quarterbacks because those were predominantly black schools, um, and, and at one point all black schools. But there were some major schools, Michigan State. Uh, USC that had black quarterbacks, you know, in the sixties, but the belief among team owners, according to the old timers, the player personnel executives, uh, you know, people within the league is that it was seen as just something that would be really stupid to do to turn over a team to a, to a black quarterback because the expectation level among team owners was that white players simply would not follow them. So you're basically tanking your, not just your offense, but your whole team was a thinking like, okay, even if one of these guys was successful in college, why would you do that? Because our, our white players are not going to follow. Them. It's a really interesting, you know, sort of points you're making there. I want to like jump into kind of the, the first story you tell in the book, which is, which is about um, Fritz Pollard, who was the first black player to play in the NFL. And, you know, while I'm reading this, this first chapter, what's coming to my mind is like, you know, everyone in America knows who Jackie Robinson is, but nobody really knows the story of Fritz Pollard. Like, what do you think separates his story from Robinson's story? And what do you think made like the history of the integration, the NFL, you know, different in terms of that, you know, he's not a household name. Well, you know, it's so interesting because we we have to remember, like we all know the NFL is now the 800 pound gorilla in the room. It dominates not just sports in this country. It dominates American popular culture. Like, I mean, the NFL, there's nothing bigger than it in, in, in this country in terms of the entertainment dollar, in terms of, you know, what we commit our time to. We commit our time to the NFL on Sundays and Mondays and Thursdays and late in the season on Saturdays. I mean, the NFL is such a part of the fabric of American life. And for someone who, you know, w- wasn't alive um, in the... 60s. I mean, I was barely alive in the 60s, but but for someone who really it, it comes of age in the in the in the 80s and the 90s in, in in this century, you have no idea that the fact that Major League Baseball dwarfed the NFL. I mean, it wasn't even for for much of the previous century, there really wasn't even any comparison. So you know, you look at this upstart league, uh, this this NFL. You know, it begins in 1920 and. You have the the Major League Baseball and the and the and the, and the Yankees, you know, in the in the Roaring Twenties, and really, it doesn't really start to turn until the late to the mid to late seventies, and then when we get in the eighties, and you know, all the Super Bowls, you know, and uh, you know the, the the great you know the the great teams that you know won many titles. So, the reason that the the, the Fritz Pollard story doesn't really resonate is because when Fritz Pollard was a star, he was a First black star, first black head coach, uh, and first black quarterback. I mean, he lined up at quarterback. It's not the quarterback we know today, obviously. But his story didn't resonate because the NFL was just, I mean, it just, it wasn't something that people thought about. It wasn't, 
you know, it, it, it wasn't like Major League Baseball, which was truly the national pastime. So you have black players in the NFL at its beginning, you know, all the way till 1933 and, and the band starts and, you know, from 34 to 46, there aren't. But you, you had black players, but nobody cared because the league just wasn't, it wasn't very popular. It wasn't what the, the American sporting public really cared to see. Now, college football was very popular. You know, you know, that was something that did really resonate. Okay. You know, yeah, you, you, you know, you had Notre Dame and Army. I mean, these, you know, these schools, you know, with college football, they really left a mark. They, they, they made people in the country stand up and take notice. But professional football? No. Nah. It, it was really about the Major League Baseball. So, you know, Jackie Robinson, when he comes along in 1947 and breaks the modern day Major League Baseball color barrier, the nation. The, the, the nation's consciousness was wrapped up in Major League Baseball. So, again, it's very hard for people to relate to this now, but, but the NFL was in its infancy. It, it, it was trying to gain a foothold where Major League Baseball dominated, uh, again, the American consciousness. Jason, I think that's something that I guess I probably haven't even considered. Uh, growing up, I was always, you always hear baseball is a national pastime. And it, it, I could even tell we're all 80s babies. So grew up born in the mid 80s. Baseball was way bigger thing when we were little kids compared to as is now. At least that, that's the perception of how I feel to be. Um, but, you know, that, that's, that story of, of Jackie Robinson being the first player, you always hear about, you know, imagine all the talent that could have been in, in Major League Baseball prior to that. Similarly, um, though football is more integrated, generally speaking, than baseball, um, as you just talked about, uh, specifically about quarterbacks, do you think, I, I mean, there must be generations of amazing, amazingly talented quarterbacks that never got the chance due to, uh, you know, preconceived, you know, racist notions or opinions or ideologies that persisted at the high levels of the sport. Um, I, my, my thought is, is do you think that is something that solely sat with the NFL or did that trickle down to NCAA or even, you know, local governments in high school sort of level sports that don't have the infrastructure to put up, um, quality football programs. I was wondering, you know, as your opinion on that, as far as the talent that we could have seen if things were in a, in a different, uh, you know, state. Well, listen, it's, it, it's just, I mean, it's fact that at the youth football level um, in high schools that were integrated, because uh, we got to remember in the Jim Crow South, yeah. you, you weren't having, you know, black players and white players play together, but in, in schools that were integrated um, at the youth level, Black players as a practice, and again, this wasn't like an individual thing where you looked at a kid's skill level and said, okay, you should go here, you should go here. Black players as a practice were not just dissuaded from playing quarterback, they were moved to other positions. They said, well, no, you know, you don't play it. So when you, when you have that from the youth level, what happens is, you know, it, it springs from the bottom to the top. So if, if at youth level you're told you can't play this position, you just can't do it. You know, you're just not allowed to then we see that move on and on all the way to the NFL. Now, again, you know, even in the 1960s, there were some schools that had black quarterbacks. I mean, uh, you know, I mentioned USC, uh, Michigan State, Jimmy, Jimmy Ray was a quarterback on, uh, you know, their, their, their team that tied Notre Dame in the greatest game ever. You know, it was called that at the time, but we know that, that a 10-10 tie is not the greatest game ever. Um, but, you know, so, yeah, the point that you make is, is uh, extremely valid that when you have it at the seeds where it's sown, well, clearly the tree is not going to grow. So absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I, I, one of the things, you know, in relation to this is that 
you mentioned there are a number of athletes that sort of made people stand up at attention and realize, you know, what, what are we doing here? Just as superb athletes, um, you know, that are not getting the chance for, you know, these reasons that are outside of the, you know, the lines, um, you know, and thinking about that, that you mentioned, uh, uh, Warren moon tried to run a slower 40 just so he wouldn't, you know, get pigeonholed into, you know, I'm assuming a, a wide receiver running back position, like so many other, you know, great black athletes, um, you know, what, what was it that, uh, you know, is, is there any other tipping points, I guess you can point to that, that sort of allowed more general acceptance of allowing players to play the best the position they're best suited for, especially quarterback. Yeah. You know, I, I, I break this answer up into a couple of things. So, you know, everybody points to Doug Williams myth busting performance in the, in the Super Bowl back in 87 against the Denver Broncos. He lights them up 340 yards passing four TDs, Washington crushes Denver. First time a black quarterback had started in the Super Bowl and won the game's MVP award. But you know how things are. People say, well, that's just a one-off. You know, yeah, he had a great day, but that's never going to happen again. But that really was a seminal moment from the standpoint of, okay, it, it, you, people who were in charge, you know, the team owners, the, the, the general managers, the player personnel executives, the head coaches, it, it put a little seed in their head like, all right, well, yeah, maybe, but nah, no, not really. So you could you could kind of say, well, that could be a one-off. But then Warren Moon, who didn't get drafted when he came out of the University of Washington, uh, 1978, he's, he leads the University of Washington to a Rose Bowl victory. He's the conference co-player of the year. And, you know, you think about it, you'd never have a quarterback today who has the measurables, you know, who has the arm strength and the height and plays in the pocket and is a co-conference player of the year of a, of a major conference. There would never be a situation where he wouldn't be drafted. I mean, unless there was some, you know, health concern or something like that. But anyway, Warren doesn't get drafted. He goes to Canada, lights it up in Canada, and the, the Houston Oilers then sign him as a free agent. He had a rough transition period coming from Canada to Houston. But after he has that transition period, he gets rolling, you know, Pro Bowl, Pro Bowl after Pro Bowl. They win a lot of games. He's putting up massive passing numbers. So the Doug Williams performance in the Super Bowl, okay, that could have been a one-off, but now there's another guy who's doing it from the pocket week after week. Also, at this time, we see Randall Cunningham emerge in Philadelphia. He's a second-round draft pick. You know, he's a punter out of UNLV. I mean, he, he played he – obviously, he's a quarterback, but he also punted. And, you know, Philly – this is a time when they're trying to get going. I mean, you know, they had Jaworski, you know, they, but now it's the, it's the, it's the late eight, it's the late 1980s, early 1990s. And all of a sudden this, the league had never seen this thing, this dual threat quarterback who could rip off runs, you know, outrun a cornerback, you know, could rush for a thousand yards and also throw it 70 yards and, you know, damn near throw, you know, for 4,000 yards. So he becomes the quote unquote ultimate weapon. You have Doug Williams, kind of causing some concern like well how could this happen warren moon he's doing it from the pocket he's doing it week in and week out and then you have randall cunningham all of a sudden you see the league start to think okay well yeah they might still be inferior but are we missing something here yeah that confluence of, of players and, and that timing does does seem to almost i wouldn't say a watershed moment but a, a moment where people um definitely 
seem to at least be, be giving opportunities and in, in, in drafting and, and, and putting black players in position to, to succeed in that role, at least more so than before. Um, yeah. I, moving more forward to, to sort of modern, you know, race uh, conflicts, I would say, I guess in the NFL, uh, I, I'd really love to ask you a little bit about Colin Kaepernick, um, you know, being, you know, someone that was standing up for, for civil rights using his, you know, free speech rights, not even, you know, um, stepping over any established lines, sort of just, you know, acting within his, um, you know, capacity there as, as a leader of a team. Um, you know, in my opinion, I think there was a lot of talent left. I don't think his skills degraded to the point where he shouldn't have had a chance to play um, at the high level in the NFL, especially back in, since he hasn't played since 2016. Um, I was just curious to get your thoughts that, you know, you know, to the degree that, that you feel comfortable sharing, like what factors are at play with that? Cause it's certainly not um, all again, held within the lines. We don't know what happens on the field. Um, I'd just love to get your expert opinion, honestly. Guys, listen, uh, you, you can ask me my opinion about anything. I write columns for a living. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> so so if, if I'm not comfortable giving my opinion, I'm, I'm in the wrong line of work. Fair well, enough. Let, 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 let me start with this. Um, yeah. There's so much misinformation around Kaepernick. You know, there was nothing in the NFL collective bargaining agreement that prohibited him from doing what he did. You know, the, the, the league messed up by not having language that that you know in the policies dictating what things happen on or before the game all the policy said was you should stand you know this a lot of this could have been avoided i don't know if colin kaepernick does everything he does if the language in the policy dictating what happened on the what happens on the field before games had been clearer maybe i'm not saying he wouldn't have in uh, i'm not saying he wouldn't have done some form of protest Okay, but I don't know if he would have done that type of protest because, again, what he did was he didn't violate any NFL rules with what he did. So that's one thing. You know, there's a lot of misinformation surrounding that. The other thing is, look, we can have a discussion. And and I've said this. I've been I've been saying this since 2016. We can have a discussion on how many teams Colin Kaepernick can start for. That's a legitimate discussion where where you can't have a discussion with me, at least not a, a credible discussion with me at least not a discussion i'm going to entertain what you're saying is if you're telling me that this guy in 2017 18 19 was not good enough to be on an nfl roster and i mean you know listen i i talk to nfl head coaches and, and player personnel people all the time and i remember i had a conversation with an nfl head coach um a guy who's very successful and i said look this this is now this is years ago i said come on be, be honest with me like he can't be on a roster. He's like, no, he's good enough to be on a roster. But the issue is, is that it, the, my owner would just not even want to do it. And I said, well, because of the contrary, said a lot of reasons, but the bottom line is it's just not worth the headache. So you see, Kaepernick, pe- people in the media, and, I, and, I've, and I've written about this also, People in the media who carried the league's water on Kaepernick isn't good enough to be in a roster. Like, I had no respect for that because, like, I have – I've sat in rooms with, with NFL coaches who have been kind enough to, like, watch film with me and explain things to me. And there are guys who have no business being on NFL rosters. I mean, I mean there are guys who are on NFL rosters because there literally is no one else. 
<laughs> like the dearth of talent at that position. I mean, when we're talking about the top position in the league, like, no, I mean, this, I'm not saying Colin Kaepernick is the best quarterback ever. Again, we can have a debate on how many teams he could have started for. I mean, now he's been out the league going on five years. Sure. Now, now, I mean, now it's like, okay, it is what it is. Yeah. But no, I mean, the reason he was, the reason he was kicked out is, you know, quarterbacks are superstar quarterbacks are the de facto partners of the owners in growing the league and making the league like the NFL just keeps growing exponentially. Okay. In terms of the profits, in terms of the popularity. So to have a quarterback, the, the, the player who benefits the most from everything the NFL is basically threaten the NFL's ability to keep expanding you know, just, just at incredible rates, like the owners were pissed. I mean, team owners were angry. I mean, this is a, it'd be one thing if this was like a wide receiver or a running back, but this is a quarterback, a quarterback is doing this to us. So, you know, um, Kaepernick is like, I don't know at this point, guys, like, I, I don't know how good he is at this point. I know he's worked out like an animal. Like, let me not say an animal because people are going to take that the wrong way. He's worked out very, very hard, okay? Um, But, you know, I don't know how that would translate depending on what type of situation he were to get into um, in terms of, you know, on on a roster. And we have to also remember that, you you know, he is a dual-threat quarterback. Now, you know, not every team wants to play that way. You know, we're in, we're in the run, you know, we're in the RPO era. Okay. You know, um, and, and, and it's, I mean, run, you know, run pass option for people who don't know what that means. I'm sorry. Um, but, but, you know, we're in the RPO era and, and like, but like not every team wants to play like that. So, you know, I, I don't know where he'd be right now. I do know, I do feel very confident in saying this. He was only kept out because of his form of protest, because he angered team owners by shining a light on something that team owners just did not want to deal with, because he angered white fans. And I say he angered white fans because we know from from polling data that that the issue of Kaepernick and what he did largely fell along racial lines. Black people, generally speaking, and it's never good to make generalizations, but based on the polling, black people generally speaking felt that what he was doing was something important and positive and white people generally speaking based on polling did not so you know um it's one of these things where and and i i wrote so much about this like years ago and i remember even before he filed his collusion grievance uh, against the league i wrote that colin kaepernick will never play in the nfl again and you know um he was good enough to play in the NFL, but what he did, he crossed the line that the owners just could not deal with. Yeah. It's uh, you know, in, in my opinion, a, an unfortunate step by the NFL and sort of, you know, whether or not it's collusion or not um, they walked in, in, you know, lockstep and sort of how they approached him as a player and giving an opportunity to play. And it could have been, you know, I think an awesome opportunity for the NFL to, to extend an olive branch to be part of the times in the moment um, and afford people the opportunity to, you know, express, you know, a very sort of innocuous form of, you know, you know, protest um, and, and shine light on something that was, 
you know, still is at the center of, you know, yeah. national politics and, and sports. Um, other, other leagues have handled it differently, um, just some to better effect than others. But um, yeah, definitely another sort of inflection point where things could have went a different way. And I, I, I sort of, you know, sad about how, how that turned out and sort of moving on from it. And it shows up every year. Like you said, when they tell you Kaepernick's working out, he's, he looks great. He's faster than he ever was, but you know, to what end, um, you know, happy, happy that he's around, happy that he's still, you know, getting himself in the news for just reminding people of, of his story. I think it's super important. Yeah. Colin, do you mind if I hop in and ask a quick question before you yeah, go? go for it? I'll, uh, you know, I, I wanted to, to ask you, you know, bringing up the, the dual threat quarterback sort of thing. And, and that's often associated with with black quarterbacks when you look at like Randall Cunningham, Michael Vick, Lamar Jackson now. And I think, you know, does that distinction hurt black quarterbacks at any point? Because we see, you know, Daniel Jones running around, you know, with with speed and velocity and, and rigor down the field. And no one ever wants to, you know, say that he's a running back dressed up like a quarterback. Do you ever think that that's a, that can be like a negative stereotype that black quarterbacks have to face that oh, can absolutely. be detrimental to them? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I mean, absolutely. Matter of fact, um, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up Deshaun Watson in this context. Okay. Yeah. Um, Deshaun Watson was adamant about not wanting to be called a dual threat quarterback because he understood the history of it. He understood that, that if you're, if you're, if you have the dual threat label and you're a black man, the, the 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 imagery behind that is okay well he a he's not smart enough to read defenses once his first read is gone he takes off out the pocket um and also that he isn't capable of lead, reading defenses so you know i remember the first time i heard him say it and i thought to myself okay well yeah i mean he he understands the history of it. I mean, a lot of a lot of people don't understand the history of things, but he understood the history of it. So it's it's definitely a, a negative mark on these guys because of the history. We go back to a time when one of the knocks against black men at that position was that they they're incapable of 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 you know progressing through the reads and then staying in the pocket. And making it the right decision. Why? Because they're stupid. So Deshaun Watson did not, as as athletic as he is, he did not want that label. Because if you're a dual threat quarterback and you have and, and you're black, there's something that a lot of people are going to go to right away. Uh, switching gears just a little bit. Um... We recently saw the allegations made by Brian Flores, and for a league uh, with almost 60% of the players that are black, uh, what does the NFL have to do to create more equality and representation on coaching staffs uh, and in front offices for minorities? Uh, Do things like uh, the Rooney Rule actually work? So, you know, I I write about this so much, um, you know, and, and I don't mean to be flippant about this, but but what I often say is the owners Please. just have to be a little, well, yeah. well, I mean, what, what I, I, I don't write this, but this is what I think often. The owners just have to be a little bit less racist. I mean, <laughs> it's the, true. The, I mean, the, generally this is, this is the, the gist of, of a lot of this, isn't it? Right. You know? yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, here's the thing. Quarterback used to be the frontier, the last frontier for black players in the NFL. Okay. The, the, for, for, during the years of the ban, the frontier was black players for 12 years could not play in the NFL. Once black players got back in the NFL, okay, well, now the frontier was they, they supposedly weren't smart, smart enough to play the up-the-middle positions, the thinking man's positions. Center, who's the quarterback of the offensive line, he has to help with the line adjustments. 
middle linebacker, the quarterback of the defense. He he makes the play calls. So for a very long time, there just weren't black middle linebackers. Now think about that. Okay, you know, in a four-three defense, the the fact that you and now people would be like, well, that's insane. I mean, what are you talking? I mean, you know, Mike Singletary, you yeah. know, one of the greatest. You know, Harry uh, Harry Carson. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I mean, so like. But you got to remember, this is the this is the ingrained racism in the situation. So, you know, then after all those barriers fell, you know, you could you could have I mean, uh, Dwight Stevenson, the, the the great center of the uh, Miami Dolphins. Um, you know, you have you have Harry, you have uh, middle linebackers who are black. So those barriers toppled. Um, then the last great frontier was quarterback. Well, you know what the frontier now is: head coach, yeah. general manager. Yeah. Those are the frontiers. And, you know, it's simply it's simply not legitimate to say, well, there just aren't qualified candidates out there. You know why? Because you know what they used to say about quarterback? Well, there are no good black quarterbacks. Well, we know well, we now know that's not the case, obviously. And it's the same thing with, with head coaches and general managers. Um, NFL has 32 teams, as you guys know. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. There are three black head coaches in the NFL. Now you know, I, I had someone, I was on a panel once, and I had somebody say, well, you know, well, what's a good number? You know, what, you know, what are you, are you looking for a quota? I said, no, I, I don't, I, I don't, I'm not looking for a quota at all. I, I just think that what we, she, and the person said to me, well, what are you looking for? And I said, for me, you know, as, 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 a, as a journalist who writes about this, I just think the appropriate thing would be, you know what, no set number, but just that everyone has a fair shot, a truly fair shot in the interview process and let the best person emerge for the job. Because I tell you what, if that happens, there will be more than three black head coaches in the NFL, okay? And so, you know, I I, I keep going back to, this isn't that difficult, okay? Um, You know, there are qualified people out there, okay? There are qualified black coaches, there are qualified coaches of other races, ethnicities, you know, what have you. And the thing about it, though, is, see, a big part of the problem is as much as quarterback is, if you're a franchise quarterback, you're the face of a team. But who's also the face of a team? A head coach. And there's a comfort level situation with, with a lot of these team owners. And I say team owners because, look, no matter what anybody thinks about Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, <laughs> Roger Goodell walks the talk in the office he runs. If you look at football operations in the, in, in the NFL league office, there are many people who look like me who have vice president level titles or above. I'm not talking about people who are fetching coffee and getting mail and picking people up at the airport. I'm talking about vice president level people and higher who actually have decision-making roles, decision-making jobs. But at the team level, that's not the way it is. So, you know, again, I don't mean to be flippant about this, but I, I it, it almost is really if the owners would just be a little bit less racist and if they just said, OK, let's look at these candidates. And and again, but there's got to be a comfort level there. I'm gonna, do I have time to tell you guys a quick story? Absolutely. Please. OK, so I was talking with a, a former NFL head coach and. He's black I'm, and I'm saying he's black because it's relevant to the story, mm-hmm. and he was telling me that. He had interviewed with an owner once, and the owner told me he loved him. He thought he made a great presentation, very smart. 
He, he, he liked, you know, his resume. He liked what he had heard about him from other people throughout the league, but he couldn't hire him. He said to him, he's, he said, look, I can't hire you because if I hire you and you go hire all, all these black coaches, and then if that keeps on happening everywhere in the country, then like my son and my, my son's friends won't have jobs one day. And I was, I was like gobsmacked. I just, I mean, I, initially I thought he was kidding when he said it. And I, and I just said, I, I mean, and you know, like when you think somebody's telling you a joke, like and it's a bad yeah. joke, but it's still yeah. a joke. You just kind of said, and he was dead serious. And, you know, that is a, I mean, black, you know, rise of the black quarterback, what it means for America. You know, when we look at America, okay, there is a fear among people in this country, people you know, pe- people who traditionally have had a- opportunities at birthright, they are worried about being replaced by black and brown people. So when he said this to me, after the initial shock, I thought about it, I was like, well, yeah, because, you know, if, if people feel that like the country is becoming too multicultural and that they're, you know, I say people, I, I'm saying white people, obviously, and if they feel that their kids won't have the same opportunities that they had because all these black and brown people are not taking all these jobs from them. Like, and, and as I started working through my mind, you know, and I was like, well, yeah, I mean, that's been a political platform for a lot of politicians. Okay. So it, it stands to reason that an NFL owner would be like, yeah, you know, if you do that and, and, and he just kept on, you know, expanding that, to say, well, my son and his friends won't have any, won't have what they could have had when I grew up. It's a powerful thing, <laughs> you know. What I mean, that it's um, that's why I wanted to write this book, not just about football, okay? Yeah. Because there's a lot more at play here than the fact that black men now occupy such a position of power at the most important position in sports. There's a lot more in play about the country as well. We see that you know, daily on, on the news and all, and, uh, you know, a lot of nightly shows, Fox news, whatever it is, you know, those are, those are theories that, you know, people might've thought were in the past, but seem to be, you know, back in relevance again today, which is sad and scary. And, you know, thank you for sharing that story with us because it's, it's definitely interesting and a little eye opening that, you know, things like that are still happening, you know, even in, in, in a league that, you know, claims to be as progressive as it is, you know? Yeah. I wanted to, to kind of round things out, um, kind of touching on a little more giant stuff. Obviously, we're, we're a Giants podcast and all, but uh, it's still kind of relevant. Um, OCU Minor has been an ambassador to NFL Africa, bringing in players who may not have had the chance to showcase their talents to the league otherwise. Uh, what impact do you think the program will have on the future of the NFL? You know, I actually, uh, I actually wrote, uh, I believe I will pat myself on the back here. I think I broke the story about that. Uh, the first the NFL's first trip yeah. to Africa. Nice. Um, you know, here's the thing. I, I really admire. I love quarterback play. Like it's something I I've, I've always been fascinated by. I also love edge rushers. I, it's something that I've always like. Even before I covered the NFL, you know, I grew up a lot. You know, a Giants fan watching Lawrence Taylor, watching Carl Banks. But anyway, you know. OC is always one of these guys who you talk to him. There are certain people who are, you can tell they're just a cut above most of us. Okay. And 
their, the, their thoughtfulness and the way they approach things. Like, you know, I remember talking to him a while ago about what he was trying to accomplish with this, you know, basically opening up this continent to the NFL the way the NBA has been opened up uh, to, to Africa long before the NFL. And O.C. is such a smart guy and such a thoughtful guy. Like, I understood, like, right away, like, as soon as we started talking about the impact this could potentially have. I mean, look, pe- people can talk about the problems inherent in the NFL, but, you know, the NFL has also given a lot of people opportunity to, to make money, to have a quality of life that they might not have otherwise had. And I do believe that in opening up that continent to the NFL, you're going to find people who are going to be able to play in this league. And I mean, eventually play at a high level. Um, off the field, there can also be opportunity as well. Because what we know is, is that like, there are, there are jobs in the NFL that just aren't being players or coaches, okay? So I think what OC is doing is really great. Um, I, I, I was very pleased, you know, when, I, when, he, when he told me he wanted to talk to me about this. Um, and I, I think it's one of those things that can be a win-win for the NFL and also provide opportunities for some people um, who might not have had the opportunities that the NFL can provide, not just on the field. So I think it's, I think it's a great thing OC's doing. I'm not surprised OC's the one doing it, okay? Um, and there's no one better to kind of spear, to kind of lead this thing for the NFL. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there are people in the league office who have a lot to do with this. So I don't want to minimize the impact of anyone else, okay? But look, OC Humaniore is the face of this thing. Sure. And if you're picking a face of this thing, he's a good one to have. And he's a very international nice. guy. Okay. I mean, he has a home in London, if I believe. Uh, and he, it kind of seemed like he was going down this route for years. He always came across as someone who was destined for bigger things, even when he was playing. Uh, can, having... can I, can I, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, go, no, go for it. I, I, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I just, a story popped into my head. Yeah, I'm yeah. not as young as I, I'm not as young as I used to be. So <laughs> when it popped in, if I don't get it No, no, no. Got to get it out, yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, I was, I was talking to OC about, um, about the genesis of this. And like, and I said to him, come on, be honest with me. The first time you talked to Roger about it, like he must've been like, you know, no, he, he must not have seen it. He's like, no, like Roger understood right away the potential benefit of this. Okay. Now look, Roger's job is to make money for the owners. We know that. Okay. But I, I do believe that, that, that Roger does in many cases see things that can benefit the league and, and the perception of the league and also for lack of a better way to put it, do good. So, you know, he told me, no, Roger right away got it. He got why this was important. And look, OC is the type of person who, if he believes in something, he's going to be able to convince other people that it's a good thing to do. But I do think it was important that Roger bought in right away, according to OC, because look, the the NBA has been there doing things and, and helping its product, its brand. And so I think that that was a very important thing that he told me that, no, Roger got it right away. It wasn't a, it, it wasn't a sell job. That's great. It's good to hear. I mean, he, he has a, uh, a tough reputation, I, I think, uh, among fans more than anything else. So he gets booed at all the drafts. It happens. I mean, I think it's fun for everybody at this point. But um, 
I have one more question if you have time for it. Um, hey, whatever it, you guys need, man. It's kind of twofold. Um, one, uh, are you still a Giants fan? You spoke before. It was more of a back-in-the-day <laughs> kind of thing. I know it's very hard nowadays to be, as it's been a struggle for at least the last 10. Uh, and the second part of the question is, is how do you feel about uh, the team, uh, the players, and the staff going into the season? All right, let me let me uh, just firstly. So, you know, since I've been a journalist, I'm not a fan of any team. Anymore. I know, I mean, and I, I knew that was coming too. I yeah, just needed yeah, to I, ask it. No, that's fine. No, no, no listen, <laughs> listen. But listen, let me tell you something. Um, you know, my childhood, what got me hooked on the NFL, okay, was watching Lawrence Taylor, okay, play for the New York Giants. Like, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, there was this game in um, – I, I believe it was the Pontiac Silverdome at the time. Um, and, you know, like I played football as a kid and I, and I had, was beginning to understand like what like outside linebackers do. Well, he had this play where he intercepted, like he, he had this interception. He ran like, it was like 90 yards for, for, for this. It was, one, it, it was like, and I remember watching it live and it just made me like, I couldn't believe it. Cause like, you know, outside linebackers weren't supposed to do that. And, you know, I, I, I as I got older and, you know, I, I started getting into this stuff more and more, like, you know, people don't understand, people, people, I just don't think most football fans understand, like, when, and I'm going off on a tangent here, okay, so I, 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 I realize. I'm with you. Right. Um, and, and if I got, just, if you want me to stop, you just, no. I'll just tell no, go, go, go. go. <laughs> All right, but the thing about it is, is that, you know, people don't understand what he did for the game, to the game. You know, the, 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 the conventional wisdom, and I'm not telling anything, you guys anything you don't know, obviously, but outside linebackers were blocked with a tight end or a fullback. Okay, I mean, that's just what you did. But, but with him... You know, they, they, you know, they talk about the great edge rushers today, you know, and I, I was watching this uh, one, a game and they talk about Miles Garrett had this game where, you know, they were sliding and they were, you know, they were setting in the tight end. and the, But people don't understand, like, what this guy was the one who made teams have to think about these things. Like, you tried to block him with a fullback, he blew up the fullback. You tried to double team with a tight end and a fullback, he blew up the double team. Then you started slide protecting and also had the tight end of the fullback, and he blew up that. I mean, look, I, I know there are a lot of great defensive players in NFL history, but there has never been a better defensive player than Lawrence Taylor. Yeah. Like, I, 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 I mean, you know, you know, you know, and, and, and the thing about it is, is like, like, you know, what, okay, I'm getting real, real nerdy and wonky here about football, <laughs> so I I, 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 I try not to do that. But we it's like, it. okay. But it's like, you know, quarterback is the most important position in professional sports. And if you're going to be a Super Bowl contending team, you got to have a cover corner as much as there can be a cover corner with the rules the way they are. You got to have a quarterback. You got to have a left tackle. And you have to have a dominant edge rusher. This guy set still sets the standard for what a dominant edge rusher is. So, you know, um, like we can talk about, you know, his off the field stuff, but I, yeah. I separate that from when I'm just talking about the purely football thing. And, you know, I remember uh, like, there's so many great stories. Um, when I, I, I covered the Washington football team as a beat writer for many years. 
And I remember there was a, a defensive a, a, a kid, a, a, a young a young player, young outside linebacker, and and um he had had a really good practice, and a couple of the players said, "Yeah, man, you know he's doing it like LT." And I'll never forget one of the coaches stopped and said, "Don't ever say that again." <laughs> okay. Like 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 I mean I get it, you know, but don't ever say that again. Um, so you know. I, like yeah, I'm a journalist. I don't root for any teams. What I root for now is great stories. I like I, I like you know if I'm at a game and a guy's having a great game, I'm like oh wow, you know that's something I want to see. But um, but my childhood, like my yeah, my childhood was like you know spent look you know the 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 '86 team, the '90 team, you know the '89 team, which was great, you know and it you know, they'd blown coverage and, you know, the, the guy, you know, Flipper Anderson. But, but my point is, is that, um, but like, I, I don't root for any teams yeah. anymore, but I do. But if you, you know, and, and Washington fans who watch this pot or listen to this podcast are going to be pissed because they already think I, I hated Washington. I did hate Washington, but it's like when there's nothing but chaos, you write about the chaos. Yeah. But, um, but no, but my childhood and I have very fond memories of, watching that team and watching Phil Sims and, you know, and, and, and Morris and, um, you know, uh, I, I mean, it, it, so anyway, yeah, I'm not a fan anymore, but I was there. But as far as the team now, you can't replace a coach every two years. No. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I mean, like, look, I get it. They've made a lot of mistakes on coaches, but there comes a certain point. I'm going to tell you another story. Okay. I, I'm, I'm telling a lot of stories and I, and I, I hate. No, please t- tell all okay. the stories you can. We, we love it. <laughs> so, okay. So I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a, uh, I'll just say he's a high ranking player personnel official for another team. I'll, that's as far as I'll go with it. And uh, we were having, we we're actually having dinner. And um, the Giants had just fired um, the last one. Um, or judge. Yeah. judge. No, judge, judge. Yeah. And I said to him, I was like, isn't that like like three like who each got like two years? He's like, yeah, they're 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 ten years away from winning. And now I thought about that, and I was like, well, you can't really say that. He's like, you can't replace a coach every two years. And and you know, I've been very fortunate because there are a lot of really bright football people who know a lot more, who obviously forgotten more than I'll ever know, and they for some reason they like talking to me and educating me. And what they explained to me is that you, it's what you don't understand, what, what fans don't understand is it's not just that they're blowing out coaches every two years. It's the whole infrastructure that gets gutted and then you start over. Mm-hmm. So his point about them being 10 years away from possibly winning was that they being the Giants, obviously, is that each time, like, if you're building a program, okay, four years is a legitimate amount of time to say, are we showing that? We're drafting well, we're making good moves in free agency, and we have a staff that has a good philosophy because most of these teams run the same stuff, okay? The, the, the difference is, do you have the players? Do you have better players than the other guy? And is the coaching to the point where they're not screwing you up, okay? And you can't tell that after two years. You just, I mean, unless it's just so abysmal, you know, that, that okay. But the point he was making to me is, is that, you got the thing every two years and four, four to 
four years is enough time you should be able to tell, do you have the right general manager? Do you have the right head coach? But you Can I ask every- you, Jason, quick? Can, yeah. I, can I ask you, yeah. when you say yeah. when things are abysmal, is running two QB sneaks in your own territory at the 10-yard line abysmal to you? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, you know, it's so funny. I was just about to say that, see, and that's the thing. Like, but you got to see, I covered Washington when Jim Zorn ran the swinging oh. gate play twice oh, on Monday Night Football. Yeah. So, you know, like, don't get me wrong. When Judge did it, I was like, well, that's not very good. But, <laughs> but I've, I've, I've seen worse. But, no, you're right. When it's completely abysmal, you have no choice. But when you've done that two previous times, yeah. now you're looking at, okay, now you've done this over a six-year period. You've gutted the whole infrastructure. You've brought in new people. It takes time to build a program. But when you do it three times, three, three times in a six-year window, right? Yeah. When you do it three times in a six-year window, like somebody else needs to be picking the head coach, okay? Because because when you're doing it that that frequently, something ain't working, okay? I mean, it, it's just a fact. So when he said to me, they're ten years away from when I said, you can't say that. He's like, look, let me explain. And and he went through like even from the standpoint of like you know, like the video guys you replace. Yeah. The, 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 um, you know, the, 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 the scouting, you know, cause, cause these guys don't want to bring in his own people. Okay. Not that you blow out everybody, but every position that you turn over, that's another spot where you don't know if you made another right decision and you multiply that across a football operation. Now, look, I mean, the guys they got now were part of a good program. Okay, up in Buffalo, um, you know. Now clearly, they didn't get off to a good start with this Brian Flores thing. But that yeah. aside, like you know what? But but you can't blow them out after two years. I mean, I don't care. You know, if it's running the swinging gate play every Sunday, you can't blow this guy out after two years. Yeah. You have like 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 these guys have job security now in my mind because of what what's happened the previous six years. So you ride it out for four or five years and, and, and you got to be right this time. It, it feels that, and I, I mean, I'm just speculating. It's just a feeling that I have that John Mara is finally letting go a little bit now because he has no other choice. And I think he's putting a little more uh, confidence in his choices now and the, uh, the GM and the head coach and everything that they're assembling together. And I, I think we're going to, one way or the other, see more of Dable and Shane for the next four or five years. I, I'm hoping anyway. It can't be blown up again. Yeah, you know, I got to tell you, man, I I can't imagine what it's like to be the son of a highly successful man and then follow right in his same line of work yeah, and not be able to make it work, you know? Um, but... Like, here's the thing, that team and that organization, I, I, my family's from New York, okay? I grew up, I grew up in Brooklyn before I, I moved to Los Angeles where I went to college. Um, that team has meant a whole lot to that city and that region. And, you know, it's been a long time. I mean, it has been a long time. And, you know, you say to yourself, well, what happens if Deshaun Jackson doesn't return that punt, okay? You know, we were at that game. We were there, yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like, I, like, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm kind of crazy like that. I think about things like that. Like, what happens if he does that? What happens if, you know, Eli has another incredible run and they win one more Super Bowl? Yeah. 
Yeah. A lot of this narrative is different. I mean, yeah, it's still a long stretch, but you you, you win three of them. Like, look at the Cowboys. <laughs> you know, they won three with the triplets, and they still haven't won. But as bad as it's been, they're still like, well, you know, they did win those three. Winning two is great, but if they won, if they had won three, I just think it would have made it a little bit easier now. But like, you know, if Deshaun Jackson, you know, I mean, what happens if, you know, what happens if they don't go on a, on the boat? You know, and like, you know, I mean, like I was just so I was pointing Plaxico shooting himself that year was really because they were the best team in the NFL before that yeah. happened. You know, listen, 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 I am so with you on that, because had had that not happened. And again, we don't know. You know, nobody has a crystal ball. Of course not. But they 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 were a monster and they lost this guy who was at the height of his career. Mm-hmm. OK, and if that doesn't happen. Maybe shoot. Maybe they win that year, okay? And you I know, think so. Like, or a deep playoff run of some kind, you know, something convincing yeah. at least. Yeah, more yeah. convincing than what ended up happening that year. Yeah, yeah. I'm I, listen. I'm with listen. Nothing good as a rule happens at a club late at night. Okay? Absolutely not. Not not not. You know, not not if not if you're a superstar athlete. It just it just it's just a bit. Yeah. Anyway, I'm I'm rambling now. <laughs> I mean, he, he could have at least wore a pair of jeans and sweatpants were the wrong choice there. I, I, would, I would think. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, a lot of times you say to yourself, like, how can these guys put themselves in this position yeah. when they have so much to lose? You know, but 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 uh, you know, part of it is these guys grow up thinking they're invincible and and that nothing can stop them. Um, whereas you know, mere mortals like the four of us. Realize, hey, we gotta, you know, we, we gotta be careful because we gotta pay our bills. Yes, that's that's true. right. That's right. Um, we have anything else for Jason tonight, guys? No. You know, Jason, awesome. thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on. It was a really interesting conversation. I, I definitely think, you know, we we all, you know, learned learned a, a bit about, you know, racism more than we have ever experienced in our life, and and viewing it through the lens of the NFL is is, is something we appreciate you sharing with us, um, guys. Please remember to follow Jay Reed ESPN on Twitter. Jason Reeves, the ESPN senior writer for the NFL, his book, The Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America, is out everywhere right now. Jason, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. We really do. Hey, Can't guys. say it enough. Hey, guys, listen, I had a blast. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for p- permitting me to go off, you know, on a tangent about my youth and the Giants. Anytime. And, uh, and uh, I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. Absolute man. pleasure. All right. Take care. Have Thanks, Jason. Guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. And with that, guys, we're going to end the pod tonight. Um, great discussion. We were super happy to have Jason on, as we just said. So don't forget to follow Big Blue United on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Don't forget to follow BBU Podboys with the Z on Twitter. Download the DraftKings app. Use promo code TPPN. Follow the Pigskin Podnet at the Pigskin Podnet on Twitter. And we'll be back next week with some more uh, Giants news, some preseason uh, wrap-up, first game, stuff like that. Have a good See night. You. Good night.